0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this episode of Supervision is brought to you by Marcos Kier. No, that is not a sponsor, it's actually my name. We don't have any sponsors at the moment, but if you would like to support what we're doing over here, head over to my Patreon and feel free to donate. I'll leave a link in the description. This episode is undoubtedly one of my favourite conversations today date with a man whose knowledge is both wide and deep. Something that you rarely find. This brief bio, which I'm about to read to you, just about begins to express how impressive this fellow is and will be repeated around the 10 minute mark. As you'll find out in a moment, I hit record somewhere in the middle of an exchange because we got straight into the conversation when he picked up the call. So do be patient. Cole was professorial teaching fellow of interdisciplinary education at UCL, pioneering the arts and sciences course, and is now the academic lead and head of teaching at a university at which he is also a founding member. The london interdisciplinary school he holds master's degrees in both theoretical and mathematical physics as well as philosophy and in case you thought his skills weren't diverse enough he was also a royal opera house scholar at the national opera house studio i think the best way to describe this conversation is as wide-reaching we discussed super concepts an idea that i'd never heard of before such as evolution entropy and fiction and all of their various applications we spoke about education and interdisciplinarity. We inquired about whether the human race has a shelf life and discussed human consciousness, the limits of reason, bureaucracy and 21st century institutional structures, as well as much more. If any of that sounds appealing to you, and I mean any of it, do stick around and I hope you enjoy the show.
1: And you think it applies to biology, but they apply it hugely in computer science now in genetic algorithms and Evolution. in design theory, and even things like memes. So basically Darwin's idea is that once you have um, reproduction, variation, so the organism changes from generation to generation, and you can pass that down through hereditability, and you've got some concept of fitness for the environment. So if something is fit, it will last, and it will pass on its genes. If it's not, it will die out, and you won't see any future generations. Once you've got those abstract concepts, you can apply that in, in many different areas. And so sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm off on one marks, but, but no, no, there no are please, please,
0: please, please. <laughs> this, this is why so, I've called you. <laughs>
1: so there, there are these. So one way you could think of structuring an entire curriculum would be through super concepts. So you'd have a term learning about evolution. You'd, you'd do it in detail from natural selection and Darwin and genetics and you'd think Actually, I can apply this concept in so many places. That's amazing. And then you could have a term on entropy, which is, as you know, quite a technical term. that dad will certainly know. It comes out of physics. Very powerful theory with. Deep history—it's it's engineering, it's physics, it's mathematics—but it turns out, um, and my great mentor Alan Wilson made his career like this: that you can apply entropy modeling to almost any situation where you have lots of particles, lots of agents, which could be people. So Alan Wilson was a mathematical physicist studying basically gas laws, and he sort of thought, right, if I zoom enough out now and watch people in a city moving around in their cars, I can start to predict through the laws of entropy where they're going to be bottlenecks, where at the best place to put retail stores. And he literally did that. And he actually, so he made a huge splash in uh, geography and urban planning from this very sophisticated mathematical modeling using entropy in completely different areas where it had never been applied before. And he actually even turned into a business and he sold his business for several million in the nineties, which shows it had real world impact. So then he's taken to archeology. He's looking at migration patterns, um, using entropy modelling, so entropy is such a powerful concept, and it doesn't just apply in physics, and then what's really interesting when you go super concepts even deeper so you think, well, evolution is quite scientific entropy, very scientific, but actually you can take concepts like fiction a completely humanistic concept Um, but there's a long tradition of fiction which sees it as somehow superior to reality in telling the sorts of coherent and communicable stories that tell us about the world so actual reality as we perceive it is pretty chaotic on a daily basis but if you order it like in a dystopia like you're reading you actually get knowledge real tangible worthwhile knowledge and so that doesn't apply just in humanities and social sciences but there was an article which kind of blew my mind so i think in this super super context so it's quite a lot in the new scientist last year saying that basically the laws of physics are telling us the world is so strange at the quantum level and in terms of what is actually impinging on our senses that we have to use a fiction to make any sense of reality. It's a bit of that kind of classic six form conversation of what is reality yeah. But yeah, what was yeah, really, yeah, of course what the was really an ethics student yeah. exactly, but what was really fun is here you had two proper quantum physicists right from the new scientists saying we've come to the conclusion that we've basically created a very useful fiction because that's the only way we can interpret what's coming to us through our senses. So then you start to think of the whole world as a fiction, a uh, fascinating lens to evolve from, and you think, wow, what implications does that have? What, what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses of doing that? And so on. So, yeah, I think, I think dystopias are a classic example of way of getting real knowledge through, through the arts, through fiction. Amazing. Yeah
0: no it's it's really interesting two things on on what you just said there the first one is that as you were talking through evolution and entropy initially i was thinking okay good so it seems that you can take the the hard sciences and the concepts that they produce and then apply them to the humanities and the social sciences and so on but not necessarily the other way around but with the fiction one when you introduce that apparently it it goes both ways and it's a it, it really can alternate
1: go both. It's a little bit. Sometimes it seems harder to find the nuggets of the super concepts in the humanities, but it's actually not not that hard. And at UCL, I did I did half a course on this, and um, we found about forty percent, I think, uh, useful humanities to sciences super concepts. So it's certainly a you know it's a rich field that you can
0: you can mine. Hmm. Um, and and the second one was when you say that people you know or perhaps it's possible that we're just creating this fiction as we look around and I hate to get into the you know what is reality conversation but (laughs) when you think about it some people do see reality in a few different ways and all of them are kind of either somebody sees it optimistically and that's how they they'd like to look at things some people think romantically everything is going to end up you know Falling into place, and it's going to be a wonderful future for everyone—all hunky dory and things like that. And then other people are just so pessimistic. They look at future and they're like, oh and you know, nihilistic <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, if that's how people see the future, then that's fascinating. What about uh, you? Or
1: are you do? You, are you a bit pessimistic?
0: Are you thinking more dystopias? Or you fundamentally think sort of we're going to work things out somehow. I think for a long time I was really, really a romantic thinker, and I used to look around at the world and be like, "Oh, this is a sign." This is going to fall into place and everything's going to be wonderful eventually. And I think maybe as you grow up a bit, you kind of realize okay, you need to be a bit more realistic and things don't always work out wonderfully. But I think a certain amount of hard work, a certain amount of thinking, and maybe a certain amount of luck, and things usually do go your way. But then like on, a, on, a, on, a, on a much bigger scale, on a kind of humanity scale on, are we going to end up in a state of nuclear warfare? That's beyond me. That's your jurisdiction. You can tell me about that call. (laughs) I, I I mean, I don't, I mean,
1: I like what you said about that combination of luck, hard work and um, forget your third one, actually, but they were good. Thinking.
0: Thinking. thinking, thinking, Yeah.
1: yeah. Thinking what to work on is, is important rather than just working. Um, Now, basically, I mean, I guess I settled in, you know, as an adult and I kind of, a little bit pessimistic about humanity's prospects because i just think we haven't been around very long we're pretty vulnerable biologically but i'm i'm sort of an optimist about the universe in general i just think it's an amazing place and for me as a you know trained in physics and i wouldn't even be too sad if there were no animate life in the universe and that, since i find it beautiful or inspiring and so sort of broadly positive that just even solar systems right so that's a bit weird some people it sounds a bit a bit psycho maybe but it's it's not it's um a course it's not
0: psycho (laughs) but what it is 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 hard to fathom because if there was no animal object you yourself wouldn't exist and you could perceive of the universe as it is right now which is you know the solar system and the stars and all the rest of it
1: yeah i mean we might just be this weird blip i don't think we are actually I've, i've got almost mystical beliefs about consciousness somehow evolving and certainly about life on other planets but it wouldn't be I mean I don't apart from my own kids of course I you know deeply care about what you know want to protect from harm more than anything in the world the sort of, the idea that the the human race has a finite shelf life and you know we're not going to be around much longer um, doesn't doesn't worry me too much because I think other great things will be going on elsewhere in the universe or some you know uh, which which is a bit which does put me slightly at odds with the the climate the people are so desperately passionate about stopping climate change i'm a little bit more fatalistic about that kind of thing because i think mm. it's kind of going to happen one way or another whether it's climate or nuclear war or overpopulation or whatever the pandemic um we're so vulnerable and there'll be a huge die back at some point um so let's reduce suffering while we can but is it worth investing massively in trying to avert all types of suffering and die back i'm not sure it is really
0: what would the alternative be
1: yeah, it's it's, it's it's. I mean, I'm not a libert- less a, less a fair libertarian either. So th- it is about finding that sweet spot. For me, so
0: much is is about finding
1: you know the middle way between extreme. There's a
0: thin line, and when you find the thin line, then that's where good things happen. I, I but, yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So you
1: and, said, go on, go on. Well, yeah, you're you're always. I mean. For me this you know this the, is this the kind of the lie about the centrists don't are sitting on the fence they don't know what they want the centrist for me is someone always scrutinizing their own position and always prepared to take critique from both sides so it's the toughest it's you know where you need the most cojones if you know the spanish word for mm-hmm. it. yeah <laughs> um, excuse
0: your spanish yeah go ahead exactly
1: so you know i mean i think being a being a rigorous centrist and looking for that thin line which um doesn 't fall victim to any extremes is is really important but in yeah in these kind of big social issues it's um, it's this balance between um, minimizing suffering now and minimizing it in, in the future and i'm you know i'm very respectful of the extinction rebellion bunch the, the thinking type, not the kind of nutters, mm-hmm. but I do question whether they want their policies would do too much damage in the short term for something we can 't really bank on in the longer run and as i said before might even be inevitable to some
0: to some degree anyway when you speak on on the inevitable front of things is that is the thinking that there there might one day or the, the humans the homo sapiens you know will give way to the next species or is is that what you mean to say or i do just i gonna... do
1: no i do i do sort of believe that i mean it's so it's so hard to predict that Marks and i mean the and the time spans are so great. We, we have no idea. But, I mean, if you look at the sort of evolution of life, the evolution of life is an evolution of consciousness, really, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I believe the biology of evolution. I'm in I'm, I'm, I'm no way a skeptic about that. Um, and, the, and the record seems to show that we came from, you know, um, very simple aggregations of chemicals right up to us and everything in between. So consciousness is a continuum for me. And uh, I'd be surprised if in some ways that, that didn't continue. But just how i've I no idea, um, and if you know if we 're not conscious enough let 's put it this way if we 're not conscious enough now to ensure our own survival, back to evolution again, uh, consciousness won 't have been such a great adaptive trait. I mean it seems to have been fantastic for human beings it's given them this power in a sense over nature in many ways we can inhabit environments far beyond our biological capabilities, but we seem to be a bit coming up against the limits of that, and they're just mm-hmm. kind of pushing back and saying. You try to dominate us for a few thousand years with your clever ideas, but there are some limits to nature, which uh, consciousness is struggling with at the moment. And um, yeah, so this is where sort of discussions with the climatologists, futurists and so on gets interesting as to how much you can change human nature and consciousness in a, in a more social sense almost of how we are with one another and how we plot our trajectory. That's when it gets really interesting because that's a big ask, but, I think if we just carry on the way we are, we will we will see these diebacks and other things that I think are more or less inevitable. Well when you say consciousness, do you mean to say our reason or is it something else? Yeah, so I was sort of hinting at this sort of distinction there really. I think there's I think there's different ways. You know, I'm sure you've done your philosophy on on thinking about consciousness as sort of self-awareness and aspects of qualia properties of mind. I think for me, two clear ways of being conscious which are actually sometimes at odds with one another are, are the reason and rationality <laughs> and the more, and the almost the opposite of that is a kind of spiritual awareness of, of, um, of something bigger than oneself and of, um, of, uh, of, uh, holes, holes being that aren't susceptible susceptible, sorry, to our, to our rational analysis in some way. Um, Now, it's odd in a way to sort of say I believe in both because usually it's of one or the other, but I I do believe in both. I think there are limits to reason that are worth, very worth um, uh, respecting and valuing. But I think that without reason and rationality, you're only going to get to very poor conclusions
0: in most areas of life. No, I'm definitely in agreement with you, and you find uh the two extremes so you've got the the really hardcore rationalists and materialists and they, they want absolutely nothing to do with this spirit realm and then you've got the really you know the, the often deeply religious who who kind of aren't interested in anything that the the holy text doesn't say but you do once again have to find a sweet spot meet in the middle um limits to reason and rationality can we go there what, yeah, what do you sure. mean
1: i could get out my favorite book for you which um might be a bit advanced for you at the moment, but I'm sure you appreciate it one day. This is probably literally one of my... Oh, it's, I'm, I'm on reverse camera, so I'm not sure you can, you can probably read it. It's called Beyond the Limits, the limits of thought. thought. It's by one of the, li- the greatest living Western analytic philosophers called Graham Priest. He's a logician. And, um, I mean, his logic is off the charts. It's, yeah, he's literally one of the world's greatest living logicians. And he has this... He believes in true contradictions. It's a position called dialethism where is that
0: is that similar to kind of the paradox that yeah you know, I think so he, Carl, Carl Jung talked about
1: yeah uh I think Jung's a different tradition you might know more about Jung than me I mean that the the paradoxes so paradoxes is you may know kind of there's a tremendous interest in that from the late 19th century with Frege and Bertrand Russell and Russell's paradox the set paradox and these kinds of things and there's always been uh, a fascination among western logicians very, very smart people, right? Logicians are seriously clever. But the the fascination of all these paradoxes that arise in in human thinking, you know, like uh, this sentence is true, the previous sentence is false, or was it the other way around? Whatever it is, these types of or this sentence yeah. is false. But that's that's the fundamental paradox, I guess. And so, uh, great mathematicians and logicians have always played with these paradoxes. But one thing that seemed to be a bedrock of logical thinking is that if you have a contradiction. Then, then there's something wrong in your reasoning along the way. So hmm. that's sometimes the process of reductio ad absurdum. You might come across in maths if you yeah, start with yeah. something that C is kind of obvious, and then you reach something where it is the case and is not the case. Then you go back down the chain and say, "Oh, we, this assumption must be wrong. Scotch that." So um, to to therefore admit or, or build a logic around the fact that there being true contradictions that things can be both true and false at the same time is really radical and so i mean this guy can handle that kind of thinking in formal symbols <laughs> in a way i can't but i'm drawn to him because in in a in a, in a fuzzier way in a more discursive way i, I sort of believe that w- the things we were talking about a moment ago that are beyond reason and rationality are in that realm of true contradictions that the mystic both is and isn't and um you know the properties of god if you like if you want to talk in that language that are both true and false because god is kind of everything so she or he can be both true and false so um no he's a very fascinating very unusual person um and it's amazing he brings in some eastern philosophy and a lot of analytic western philosophy and then other people i like a lot like wittgenstein and and so on and his his understanding of these nuances around the limits of reason the limits of thought and the limits of expression you know you you saw my paper about the ineffable truths you know there are certain truths that are true but you can't express them yeah. so someone, someone like priest i mean he, he can he really really can go there so it's the book i would have written had i had another life i think marcos
0: how did you end up going down this life shall we talk about that for a minute then <laughs> i think uh
1: i just too 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 interested in too many things really it, it's can Oh, let me warn you because you're clearly one of us <laughs> it can be a it can be a long road if you if you're not um Either forced to settle on one thing or or or, or able to settle on one thing, um, it's a mixed blessing, to be honest. Uh, and and being relatively pr- privileged, I mean, I, I didn't go to public school, and my family weren't wealthy, but I was middle class. My family were all academics, so it was comfortable.
0: For how, um, how long up the lineage do we find
1: academics? Oh, uh, well, both grandfathers very famous academics, so and my dad's a famous academic. Uh, so it's only on um, third generation. Before that, they were more professionals,
0: business people, lawyers, and business people.
1: Um, That's so, interesting
0: because uh, academia and money, they don't mix. So somewhere there was a divorce.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I talk about that now because my interest now, as you know, through LIS is to slightly get, get those people talking to each other again. I think academia has got removed from, from the world of work and, and business. And I think the world of business has moved a lot in the last 10 years towards at least attempting A kind of more ethical approach they're aware of your generation wanting more purpose-driven jobs and i i'm it saddens me that that divide and i think there's a really fruitful partnership that's possible um i can't tell you too much but unfortunately the regulator just don't see it that way at the moment they're making life very difficult for LIS and partnering with um with anybody outside the university sector and i think that's totally short-sighted it's just blind to try to segment those two areas um, to a of society, but just yeah, back to the back to the kind of career thing. Um, you know, it's a bit like the freedom thing, right? Freedom is great, but you can have too much of it sometimes. We all hmm. need human beings need parameters, obligations, discipline. And it's not that I was undisciplined in many ways. I've always been sensible. I've never sort of had a you know massive druggy phase or anything. But I just dive in something and want to learn all about it, and then and then move on to something else, and that. That does make building a career quite difficult until you're lucky you discover in your early forties there's something called interdisciplinarity and it's all the rage in the twenty in the two thousands and everyone wants to know about it. You go, Oh, that's what I've been doing for twenty years. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. As if you yeah. planned it all the way along, you know. It was it was up there <laughs> secretly. You had it hidden away. Yeah. Must have been, yeah. you know, who knows? It's like like you say it's so weird back to the optimism, pessimism. If I was one of those people that says everything's for a reason, if you'd have told me in my early thirties when I was singing you know bass roles in mozart operas but the reason i was doing this was that i was going to be you know uh, somebody people talk to about the future of interdisciplinary education in 15 20 years time just of what you're on about but then you look yeah. at
0: it from where i am now you look back and it it does make sense it really does makes sense. yeah no hindsight is a beautiful thing but there, there's another thing that you say there are all those people who say oh everything happens for a reason And i'm just mentioning this because i'd like it to be in the public domain i don't understand when people say that especially when they don't believe in any kind of supernatural. It's just a thing that people blurt out everything happens for a reason. What's that based on? I don't really understand. Anyhow, Carl, I know we've been talking for a few minutes, but I'm just gonna introduce you now and then we can get back into the conversation. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. What what is this for your podcast, Marcos? This is for my podcast, yeah. Okay. Okay. This is Supervision. I'm Marcos Kir and my guest today is Carl Gombrich. Carl was professional teaching fellow of interdisciplinary education at UCL pioneering the Arts and Sciences course, and is now the academic lead and head of teaching at the university, which is also a founding member of the London Interdisciplinary School. Carl holds master's degrees in both theoretical maths and theoret- and mathematical physics, as well as philosophy, and in case you thought his skills weren't diverse enough, he was also a Royal Opera House scholar at the National Opera House Studio. Carl, welcome.
1: Hi, Marcus. Thank you. Yeah, just, just a couple of tweaks there, if that's all right with you, just for accuracy, because <laughs> I am an academic. Uh, it was a, called a professorial teaching fellow, um, okay. rather than professional. And um, yeah, it was theoretical physics was my master's, actually. I did maths and physics, uh, B.S.C., and then I did a master's in theoretical physics, and then another master's later in philosophy.
0: Okay. and uh, Hopefully, we're going to be able to discuss, you can show me if there's an actual string between those three or those four, because this is an interesting, actually, no, maths and physics, they're definitely, maths and physics and philosophy, never mind. My first question is, how does a maths and physics graduate go to sing opera? How does that happen?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Like we're saying, it all makes sense now, but it didn't at the time. Um, I've always basically had two real loves in my life. It was music and um, academia broadly, or or thinking or learning broadly, I guess. Um, And it was really hard to do both of those, so I left school uh not knowing what i wanted to do and being young i'm really passionate about music wanted to sort of make it in music so i went to the guild hall studied piano actually and even in music i had different strands i was a drummer particularly sort of funk dance drummer um and in, cl- in music i was a classic musician i was a pianist but i really struggle honestly with the technical side of classical piano i started very late to take it seriously and it's like like any of these things, like ballet or even football, you know, unless you're really good by the time you're a teenager, you're probably not going to make it. So, um, yeah, I could I could bore you forever on this box, so but basically, I, I I missed think using my brain, and I saw the struggle that was coming with music, and I left that degree without getting it uh, in my early twenties. But while I was there, I discovered that I could sing classically as well. So it was on in my radar, but I hadn't done it. And I went to King's College London, did degrees in maths and physics, and then a masters in theoretical physics and really considered a PhD, had sort of support to do a PhD, but a combination of thinking, do I really want to be an academic physicist? Uh, And would I be good enough to make it in that world? Because that's also a very, very hard world to to make it in. Or, and the combination really missing my music. You know, I I hadn't done that much music for a few years by then. Gave me a kind of push to go and audition for this, as you point out, this 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 very prestigious. Uh, it's like a master's program, but it, it's actually a diploma, postgraduate diploma. They only take twelve people a year. It's not an academic degree; so it's not a master's, but it's it's a diploma from the National Opera Studio. So I went there, uh, got it in very fortunately, um, and that set me off on a shortish career of being an opera singer. Mm about four years, maybe five years in total with that training. Uh, but then again, I um, and in that, actually, it was important because I learned languages properly, really. I learned Italian well. I uh, got French in my gap year, actually, but learned it a bit more singing and picked up a little bit of other languages as a singer. So that was important in the interdisciplinary story later on. You
0: um, learned the languages while singing or
1: through singing? Yeah, but a bit of both. I mean, you know, opera in particular is, is sung in, in European languages mainly, mainly Italian, German, French, a bit of Russian um so often singers will will take the time to really learn the language properly as not just sing it phonetically and I, I i was one of those because i um i love languages actually anyway um been learning chinese the last few years now um
0: how's that going
1: yeah, yeah well it went really well to a while um i've really slackened off the last couple of years because honestly the political situation in china doesn't lead me to thinking i'll be going there much um yeah. well, about 5 years ago it looked much more likely that the sort of education I'm interested in was taking off in China and I met with many Chinese people uh, and I was at the level where I could have nice sort of pigeon everyday conversations with people if they were sympathetic to me and that was great so I thought you know I I could go there now and get started but then that's really stopped the last few years so it has less less kind of practical possibilities for me so I'm not doing that much but I can I've got some short stories here and I can still read them in Chinese it's it's nice skill to have so no then i so then um yeah after a few years of singing i started missing the the academic side again so um i was very fortunate a job came up in in ucl it was actually a joint SOAS ucl degree at the time teaching physics uh on a kind of foundation course actually kind of post day level pre-undergrad and i got that job i ended up running that course and then we expanded to cl- include the humanities um so I had this kind of multidisciplinary experience of running a complex course. So it was very small. It was only kind of 100 and few students a year. We um, expanded to about 150, actually. Um, and then that led to the job, at U- the, the big job at UCL, setting up the whole arts and sciences program. So, and uh, that was I- a,
0: a brand new thing.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah. It was uh, the brainchild of the head of UCL at the time, a guy called Sir Malcolm Grant. And sort of de facto number two was the... Vice Provost of Education, uh, Professor Michael Wharton. And they, I mean, I wasn't really thinking this way at that point. I'd just come to sort of the end of my job at the foundation course. I felt I'd built it. We were very successful. It was a small thing. It was kind of off the beaten track. It wasn't, didn't have a pro, big profile or anything. And i sort of done what I could. And I'd gone to my boss and said, you know, I'm thinking of doing something completely different. And I was thinking of perhaps going to China to either um, maybe head up an international school there or, or something in the university sector, um, and she said, well, how have you seen this, this big sort of educational mission which the, the, the two guys, that, top guys at UCL want to set in train? I said, no, what's that? And So she showed me the skeleton curriculum and the ideas, and I was sort of hooked. And um, it fascinated me and repelled me at the same time because uh, so clearly something deep in me was deeply sympathetic to the idea of a broad interdisciplinary education, breaking lots of boundaries, thinking about how we could rethink education, at this very different point in history when web 2.0 was just getting going, really been going a few years. Um and at the same time I was quite traditional. You know, I've been educated in the traditional way, 3A levels, single honors degree, uh, but then I'd had all this life that didn't quite fit with that. So a lot of the early work was sort of convincing myself that it was going to work, to be honest. Um and I think that's quite that's quite healthy if you are constantly questioning what you're doing and making sure that you can answer your own doubts um leads to quite robust defense of the project at the end of the day so that went on many years not least because once we started having students i was like oh my goodness what if i've led these people up the path and they're gonna all fail <laughs> i didn't i you know i tried to put as much skin in the game as we say as i could but yeah. the fact was if these students couldn't graduate you know i'd probably still have a job and they would be in a really bad way so it was it was it was uh, it was stressful, but I, I like that kind of stress cause it made me just perform and, and do my best. And, uh, and in the end, we had just amazing results at UCL. You know, we had 98, I think it was 97.8 retention on a course that took about 120 to 130 students a year. And that's amazing. That's like one mm. or two people per year on a complex, difficult, novel program. So it shows we got a lot right in terms of the way we looked after them, the way they progressed through the degree. And then once they all start coming out the other end, and they were just, oh, my goodness. Actually, I'm having a drink with three of them. After you, Marcus, are really nice. One's in Mexico researching consciousness at the moment. One's researching
0: consciousness in Mexico?
1: Yeah, with a, with a computer scientist, a neuroscientist, and a shaman. Uh, they got, got a big government grant. Yeah, you'd enjoy this sort of thing in a few years' time. One of them is finishing a PhD at Oxford in environmental engineering, uh, become a world expert in climate change resilience, particularly for island states. And another one is working for a learning tech company, um, uh, very high up in their kind of sales and implementation. So, you know, the graduates from that program are simply stunning, and, and they probably always would have been stunning. To be honest, you know, whatever they'd done, they were just that program attracts as LA, as LAs will do, really interesting, dynamic, uh, smart people, resilient, just great learners. So, but what was great about the, US, the UCL course was that it. Open the door for those people to do what they wanted to do, so they didn 't have to clip their wings and go and do one subject you know three years they just didn 't need to and this was a proof of concept that that was completely unnecessary and even counterproductive for many brilliant young people so that 's what we hope to do at LAS: is take similar thinking to the next kind of level, uh, more challenge around these real world problems and perhaps maybe a little bit more diverse cohort we 're really pushing um, our recruitment into parts of the country that wouldn't naturally consider um, a university program. And we're going to make it very clear. We hope to very bright students from all over the country. This sort of degree is, is the most exciting prospect, really, the best way to spend your three years at undergraduate period. Um, So my training was at UCL and now I feel, you know, it's the right time to try even more ambitious, even more contemporary uh, radical education at LIS
0: yeah so you've you've done away with the old and in with the new and the new is researching consciousness in mexico with shamans and computer scientists and neuroscientists which sounds fascinating uh, i wanted to ask you uh could you could you talk to me a bit more about interdisciplinarity as a concept because you know you've got historically if you look at some of the people who, who really did do great things um i don't know if we look at the, the origins of philosophy you had you had. you uh, Plato and Aristotle setting up schools and academies and and they were also very much interested in geometry and the natural sciences as well as Thinking and what have you. So is that kind of what you're going for?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question box and it's actually incredibly relevant to these materials I've been making just today and so You've got this long tradition of interdisciplinarity as basically what what I would call intellectual free play that you just don't think of subject boundaries, you don't think of disciplines, you just think of what you're interested in. Simple as that. And then you read whatever you care, whatever you've got time for, uh, whether it's from philosophy or biology or engineering that, that, that is relevant to that problem, pertains to that problem. And you might also need different methodological tools. So you might think, you know, to understand the pandemic, for example, I really do need to tool up in statistics, but you don't want to spend six years on statistics because you also want to understand the history of pandemics or the psychology of people in pandemics. So there's this, um, it's not so much the thin line you referred to earlier, but it's a kind of awareness of your learning and toggling in and out of what you need to learn. Also staying with something for some time because statistics is a bit hard. If you jump away too early, you're probably not going to get, ever get enough statistics to understand it. But it does require a self-awareness of, of, of what you need to learn and then just going and learning it. And so there, there is, a, there is a, 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 not so much a branch but a, a community within interdisciplinarity who resist all these categorizations because they're more like Plato and Aristotle, to be honest. They're just like... Why are we seeing these boundaries? Let's leverage all the knowledge we've got, uh, think about the problem we want to get further in and, and try and get further. Um, that is one way of looking at interdisciplinarity. The trouble is, uh, and I'm sure you'll be sympathetic to this, that you can't really... Well, firstly, hardly anyone on the planet is motivated enough and has enough structure in their lives to actually continue to learn like that. Even mm. people like, like me and, and you probably who, who love learning things get in the way there are hard moments when you need a bit more help than other times it's hard to know what to learn you need a guide to tell you sometimes so that's the psychological aspect and then let alone the institutional aspect right so once you say well, what's the you know structure of your school if you say well the structure of our school is everyone comes in and does what they like that's kind of no structure at all right that's no institution so when it's very small and it's play to an aristotle running it you can probably just about have a school like that but in- in a modern, bureaucratic, democratically accountable system where you've got to provide you know, numbers of intake and results and all the yada yada that goes with it, you, that, that's just impossible to institutionalize. So you then start thinking, okay, we can't quite do the intellectual free play. Shame, but we can. not How else do we structure it? And this gets, then this gets uh, into, in a way, what you're asking and what's, what's really challenging because it's not, a, it's not a discipline. It's distinct from that, and yet it is a way of working. And I think there are um, a number of ways you can do, which we're exploring. One is to take, you might call, different lenses on a problem from different knowledge areas. So I think you might know that LAS is thinking possibly one of our problems will be knife crime. Now, knife crime is clearly a cultural problem, but it's also got a legal aspect, an economic aspect, and so on. So you could spend some time in each discipline. Mm. How does that discipline look at that problem self-consciously as a disciplinary lens. That's one way to be interdisciplinary. And actually, the student I've mentioned at Oxford finishing her PhD in environmental engineering, she started to on my program at UCL, and she, you're kind of an idiot's way to do this, right? But it worked out brilliantly for her. She thought, I'm just interested in the environment, and here I am on the UCL BSC. I can do any modules I like. She went and typed in sort of environment asterisks or environment X on the thing and found modules in environmental economics, environmental law, environmental engineering, and possibly environmental sociology, I think, and she just took all those different lenses on the environment. So that was her real-world focus. And she just looked at it through all these different knowledge bases. So that's one way you could be interdisciplinary. The other way is, is through methods. So you kind of slightly downplay the literature of something, if you like, and just think, uh, what are the tools I want to in, in, interrogate this problem? So in knife crime, you might look at data science, what it's telling us about the movement of perpetrators of knife crime. You might learn anthropological methods of finding out about cultures of knife crime why people are drawn to it um but you look more at the kind of um, research methods for finding out about that problem rather it's it's related to the knowledge you can't divorce them entirely there's a slightly different emphasis about methods of interrogation rather than what people have said about this in the knowledge base that's another way and the third way is the super concepts thing that we we started um i kind of launched into at the beginning of our checks, I'm just been making a video about it. So you take these deep concepts like evolution, entropy, fiction, which are are rich and deep and can almost serve as disciplines in themselves. You could almost have a whole degree in evolution, but it wouldn't be the whole natural selection part of evolution and the biology. Fairly early on you you get that delightful surprise where you say, God, evolution actually applies to to cultural studies or to design or to algorithms. And you could think of a whole curriculum designed around these cross-disciplinary powerful concepts rather than the knowledge areas. So we've got lots of choices here. Again, a challenge is choosing which structure and keeping the interdisciplinary community together because they were all rather iconoclastic people and saying, we need some structure, guys. We can't just let everybody do whatever they like, but which one's it going to be? So I can imagine that different interdisciplinary programs with different emphases will start to, to grow up based on, on which choices of interdisciplinary working people start to make how they
0: want to do it no i'm i'm with you there i was thinking maybe an interdisciplinary approach to the interdisciplinary approaches (laughs) just to merge them obviously that wouldn't work but do you think the the bureaucracy has has actually um hindered the progression of learning and and education because of the fact that it's so difficult do you know what i'm saying
1: I do. I do hear what you say. I've got to be a bit diplomatic here, Marcos, because we're talking to regulators all the time now. Look, I mean, I. It's easy to get frustrated with bureaucracy, for sure. Everyone in their life, whether it's a parking warden, a the local council, you know, your your school, exam board, or, or you know, everywhere, and um. it's this really is a this is one of your lines or your sweet spots because without bureaucracy you've got that kind of anarchy or that libertarianism which, which yeah. is dangerous and, and the society doesn't hold t- together it doesn't but, work on a big level but on a smaller level perhaps it would work yeah exactly good good point so a lot of this is about scale and size and it's actually where weirdly and i never thought i'd say this I, i'm getting some sympathy for the anti-eu people because mm. uh it's just too big to to, to run and there's no I was going to say that. Go on to say, there's no doubt that in advanced democracies, bureaucracy has has become a problem. You know, American legal profession, for example, just looks totally gone to me, totally corrupt. And uh, I think in education, honestly, uh, I mean, I say bureau- I said democracies. Of course, p- democracy's uh, bureaucracy is terrible in 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 um, China too, and in Russia. So it's, mm. uh, I, I don't know that I don't the solution. Perhaps the best solution is just what you said: some kind of localism where accountability is more natural to the people because you know them more face-to-face. Um, but then you have to scale this aggregation of localism, which is going to happen because of the connectivity of the modern world. So if we have this sort of local accountability and less bureaucracy, which I agree sounds ideal, how do we then connect these local bureaucracies and have sort of passports that work, whether they're, you know, uh, financial currencies that are transferable or ethical principles, whatever. It, it's a very, very hard problem. But I do think, I do think that um, universities have suffered enormously from the expansion. And this is the scale point, really. They're just too big now, and they, they try to be too homogenous, and that all comes under one national framework for what a university is. Mm. And the brand, the brand of a university is so powerful that everybody wants it. But it's that, that, that incentive or that need, if you like, then sucks everyone into exactly the same bureaucracy, which then totally stifles the sort of innovation, creativity you want. So I, I think, I mean, I, I'm not sure what, what you think. Well, I'd like to hear what you think about this, but the, the driver of your question seemed to be, you know, do I think it's gone too far? And the answer would be yes. And I'd like to work actively to unwind some of it, but I haven't spent a lot of time on that. What's your impression about bureaucracy in education? Any specific examples?
0: Are you are you um, familiar with the? Uh, he's a contemporary thinker, Nassim Talib?
1: I'm a big fan. I've got to say, almost almost hero status, which is a bit uh, embarrassing for someone like me to admit. But uh, I think he's one of the most important thinkers alive today. As well. Who who achieves hero status for you? Uh, usually, dead people. Taleb. I'm Richard Richard Feynman, a hero. Mm-hmm. Einstein. Um, actually Barack Obama a bit of a hero of mine um, Mm.
0: who he is and what he represents Um, well he represents in some ways big government which could in other words be bureaucracy which could in other words be not what Carl Gombrich represents maybe
1: I didn't see that so much I mean that's what you hear from the people who support Trump now but seems to me that trump is just sort of running down government in a completely chaotic way and at some point someone will have to pick up the pieces there he's getting by with it because he's in that stage where things can fall apart without anyone noticing but i you know um bureaucracy is one of those things that you there's a big lag in it right so you start on what you let it all fall apart and then it seems great for while everyone's free and then suddenly you've got a real issue which needs resolving by some bureaucratic structure, and it's all fall apart, and you've got no system or recourse in which to do that. Um, so these, these, are ser- these are wicked problems that sort of LIS is interested in, where there's just no... I mean, I was optimistic for, for more socialist principles plus the transparency that the Internet could give So it seemed to me that fundamentally socialism has failed. Communism again and again is because it's so corruptible. People seize the few tools of power and sort of claim that the proletariat have all the means of production, but in fact, it's just ruled by, you know, an even smaller group of elite than capitalism is. But you would have thought somehow the internet (coughs) could make us, let us look into, you know, President Xi's bedroom every night to make sure he wasn't fiddling his taxes uh, so that these people entirely accountable and it just doesn't seem to happen i mean I've, I've been hearing a little bit about estonia recently which is a very advanced east state i don't know if you're up on this, what estonia is doing at all
0: no so but please it's, bring me up
1: to speed well no i mean i barely understand it but one one or two things that really struck me was it's well it's small so there's two point something million i think i hope i haven't Diss the Estonians. I Everything. Mean, it's a small country, but uh, one thing in particular I thought was very impressive is that yes, all their data is centralised, which leads to a greatly eased, um, more fair tax system and health system. But they have a system in place whereby if anyone looks at your centralised data from any any organisation, you are alerted to that straight away. Mm. So if Dominic Cummings wants to, I would I would give my data to Dominic Cummings if, if I got an alert saying he's now looked at your data because I'm legally entitled to get an answer from him as to why he's looking at that data. So these kinds of innovations, and they've got another thing about public private where they just don't sense a kind of fight between the public and the private sector. But I, I, I can't remember how they kind of operationalize it, like that, but that seems so and these things should be possible now with the internet because we're all sort of flattened in some way, but most of us just aren't using those Those. Affairs. yeah but
0: instead what the internet has allowed because i mean the Estonia think it sounds great in principle but in practice if any one of these estonians has you know one to three social media accounts let's say their data is being viewed all the time and they're not really getting a lot about that or is is that included that when uh, you facebook mean it's being or,
1: by, by private by by facebook and that sort of thing yeah you, or is yeah, it just but, that's a separate thing, all right? This, I think the only answer to that would be, yeah, we, we're we doing it better than Facebook because mm-hmm. uh, it's it's governmental data for our national um, society, which the government holds. So that will be mostly tax-based, criminal justice-based, and health-based, I guess, perhaps education as well. Um, and they would say, you know, in a way they're a model for what they think um, – I'm putting words in their mouth now – but I think they would claim that they're much more transparent about – their data handling than private organizations are. So you're right that we're all giving away our data all the time to these corporations with have no idea what they're doing with it. Estonia would, I think, argue that their government handles our data much more ethically than private organizations. So, you know, you, you would hope the Internet would allow us to redistribute wealth, take the power out of the hands of the few by uh, reducing de- bureaucracy and increasing transparency
0: but I haven't really seen it yet to be honest. So who knows? (laughs) I think it does a lot of uh, fog creation. It makes everything seem a bit more. And and another thing I've noticed with the the internet, or this might just be my own kind of neurotic thinking is um, because of how much information there is out there, you know, any one given topic, you'll have at least a thousand different people who have written about it. Let's say a political event that's happened, a thousand people from, I would say a thousand different viewpoints. Some might say, you know, divide it up into the political categories, that you feel almost ignorant if you haven't read all of them or if you don't know what, what this is saying or this is saying and this is saying. But before, you would have read, you know, if chunky literature, you discover the political theory, and then you're informed as you can be. But now it's, it's, it's not the same. Yeah, I completely disagree. This is a, uh, I agree with you, Mark. <laughs> Classic. Yeah.
1: This is historically completely new there's a guy i love on this called david weinberger who wrote a book in 2011 called too big to know about the state of knowledge and he refers to there's some lovely passages in that book it's still 10 years old but it's so prescient and it's so relevant a couple of things i remember he says is one is that um we 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 know now we will never agree or something what we what we have is a not about facts not facts about which we will ever agree but a shared world in which we will always disagree. I love mm. that. And then he says this uh, one point. there's a very simple phrase. Is, he says, this is the age of the great unnailing. Like, you know, you had these things nailed to the wall, whether it was, you know, laws from Ahsoka or, or some priests rules of the parish. Uh, and there's, there's nothing like that anymore. There's nowhere we can all go and look at the, the, the priests, uh, edicts or recommendations for the week and just say that's what we're all going to do and i think i i think this is kind of the fundamental problem how can we find agreement
0: about anything at the moment there is so much relativism so everything is up to interpretation you know i've got my opinion and my opinion is just as valid as your opinion carl and don't you tell me that it's not otherwise we've got a problem i mean it is a problem yeah there there is no um consensus having said that i i am a big fan of of the individual and i'm a big fan of kind of individuality and each to well, where do you
1: where own. do you look for consensus and how do you feel as a younger learner not super young obviously but younger than me how do you feel you're building your consensus on, on what principles consensus on what exactly on on your on your ideas where, where are you finding the communities that you relate to and feel are Pe- thinkers and people that you you feel uh an affinity with and on what basis
0: does that happen once again individuals there is no kind of wider community i've i found in my experience at least that um there'll be individuals who i stumble across in any which way so uh the community that i grew up in the coptic orthodox community there are a few individuals that i've met and you know i've really really connected deeply with them and on an intellectual emotional and and spiritual level and so these these are the people that I'd like to discuss my ideas with and they're the people who understand and not in a in a condescending way but they, they have similar thoughts and so we can go back and forth and then there are other people individuals who I might have met at school two or three of them individuals that I've met on a random occasion I've got a really close friend now who's um I met at are you familiar with Notting Hill Carnival
1: yeah, too, yeah. Well, yeah, not anymore, Mark. T-
0: not <laughs> <laughs> you might have to join me this year, Carl. Um, I met him at uh, a kind of small after-party gathering after, um, after Notting Hill Carnival last year, and we, we just hit it off and we connected with a few different ideas, discovered that we had similar thoughts about similar things. Not that, Not necessarily that we were in agreement on those topics, I, c- I couldn't care less too much, uh, to be honest mm. about whether you agree with me or not. But if you're having similar thoughts and coming to different conclusions, we can have a good discussion and I can definitely learn something from you. So did I finish where I met? I met him at the after party and now we talk all the time. And, you know, he's, he's, he's a few years older than me anyways. But um, so, yeah, there's, there's not the consensus, there's the individuals. And I'm a big fan of the individuals because they're always unique. and They've always got a slightly different experience to the next guy.
1: And do you, do you find it easy or at least possible to have friends on that individual basis with, with really very different views to you? How far would that go? Mm-hmm. Could you be sort of matey with someone who is quite racist in some ways or, or um, a kind of I'm... crazy anarchist who wanted to destroy a lot of your beliefs in, in other ways? How, how far can that can okay. other qualities of a person overcome the more
0: political beliefs? No, I'm, I'm really glad you asked the question, at least because it, it gives me the opportunity to, to put some clarity to what I said, which could be interpreted wrong. Um, so, for me, and uh, I don't remember which book I got this from, which we kind of put it really concisely there needs to be a, a, a bedrock of values, principles, things that I believe in, and they're the kind of things that guide my everyday actions. So, one of them might be, you know, cringy as it sounds, love. So I believe in love, and then somebody else wants to tell me, oh, no, screw love, and so on and so forth. We probably can't go forward together. Another Mm -hmm. one is uh, discipline. Another one is family. Another one is, um, by discipline, I mean self-discipline, not not the caning kind. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then family. So if people are really, really at odds with those kind of fundamental principles, I'd still be interested to figure out, you know where are you coming from, but I don't think we'd be able to to have any kind of fruitful friendship or fruitful relationship. But
1: um, and back to the sort of things we're talking about, like the future of humanity. How how optimistic are you that we can ever get enough consensus over values? Because I sense this polarization that we see so many places in the world is it, really value driven, and it's not very fashionable to say this actually. And but it seems almost biological these values. I don't know how mm. how it happens.
0: By biological, you mean kind of determined or mimetic?
1: Sorry, I missed you. just went out a bit there.
0: So By you biological, want... you mean determined or like in, in terms of determinism or mimetic?
1: No, more, more determined. So more the, the, the nature rather than the nurture. I mean, obviously, it's not black or white, but it's, it's really, really strange how we seem to be ending up with these clusters of values that are more and more polarized around conservatism progressivism tradition breaking tradition you know equal rights more traditional values and so on it, it, i don't know perhaps, perhaps i'm perhaps i'm too pessimistic here perhaps it is
0: just nurture um i think there's a chance i sit on your side of the fence i was um <laughs> i was doing a questionnaire maybe earlier this week or the other week it was like a self-knowledge questionnaire something i found with uh, from one of the guys that i I watch online and the question was, do you think world peace is possible? I really sat down and I thought about that question. I thought and I thought and I thought and I, thought and I didn't give a yes or no in the end. What I said was for world peace to, to become a possibility, two things would, would have to One of two things would have to happen. One is that people suddenly have a consensus on their views and they can agree on everything and there is no longer any disagreement. That's not and then happen. that's not going to happen unless there's some kind of um, communism, some global communism, some kind of uh, totalitarian state, you know, maybe even uh, a national socialist state. Um, and the other option that I I, I put forward was um, if people completely understand that that they're gonna disagree with others, but they're okay with disagreeing with others and and they believe in the democratic process. But even then I'm I'm still kind of cynical about the whole world peace thing. And if there's no if there's no difference then there's no conflict, but you need difference for, for the kind of diverse world that you want to live in. Otherwise it's it's really quite boring.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really nice, subtle point. The sort of difference is the engine for progress, isn't it? But once you get too much difference, then you've got a real problems. So another another sweet spot scenario.
0: Yeah, for sure. I want to talk to you, Cole, about... So you gave me t- uh, three words which stuck in my head uh, in, in one of your soliloquies a few moments ago. You said, we don't know what to learn in the interdisciplinary uh, Feel you don't necessarily know what to learn, and this is a problem that I found with um, with what I would call internet learning. So I spend some time on YouTube, and then I bounce from YouTube to reading an article, and then you know suddenly I'm I'm watching Joe Rogan talk to this academic, and I'm like, oh, he's a lucky guy. I want to talk to that guy, and so on and so forth. And then you've got this cluster of knowledge that has come into your head. And you don't know where to go from, from there. You don't know, what should I be learning next? And then, you know, you can kind of follow a Wikipedia string. But at the end of it, it's just you've taken in a lot of words. So what are your thoughts on the best ways to learn outside of the traditional establishment and so forth?
1: You know, Marx, I think this is the question. So I know it's the hardest question to answer at the moment. And um, it's a bit culturally specific, like we were saying earlier. But if you are basically... Of a caliber to go to university in the West—that is your question. Um, so the, I'm not going to give you an easy answer about it because I think it's so difficult. Well, I mean, one thing I would say is that I think it's a lot of the reason the disciplines survive because people are so reassured by the title of a degree in physics or or uh, French or whatever it might be. They just are you know, taken care of for You know, those academics know what they're doing. I'll go and do this, but that is actually literally a comfort blanket with no relevance to. Real learning. What you're doing in the way you learn is just as real and probably actually impacts you more than people who just do something for the sake of the discipline because it's at least it's emotionally driven for you, at least it's it's following something you genuinely want to learn. So bits are, are sticking because it's connected to the to the right emotional parts of the brain. So I, I think um I think is it's the hardest question to answer, and um it's one reason why I want. The world of work to integrate more with universities because I think we're all in this together to use a uh, an ill used phrase in some context, but the modern world is immensely complex and churned up and um, there are tremendous exciting and interesting good things going on in the outside universities that are driven by in a way by realities more than in university right because um, there's a more competitive environment whether you're for it or not and i'm i'm sort of agnostic on certain aspects of capitalism, certainly aspects of marketization. But it is a reality that, back to evolution, (laughs) competitive environments of all sorts lead to very interesting adaptations. And um, outside of universities, so much of this is going on now that if you were able to spend some time with an NGO or the startup or the big, big corporate, you would see all their concerns, all the problems that they were wrestling with. And for me, that would give you a better in into something uh, as a hook, if you like, or or an end Mm. goal, which is at least as valuable, let's say, as a traditional academic discipline. Possibly not more valuable, but it is a focus, right? And I guess that's what we're talking about here, because you and I and everybody, it's not just you, anyone who's interested in learning at the moment, is really struggling. I started an online course in machine learning about six weeks ago. I have wanted to do machine learning for ages because it's so important. Um, two things happened. One is it was online. I was spending all time online anyway, so I just couldn't bear to be online anymore, which is kind of interesting culturally. But secondly, I got two weeks in I thought, this is interesting. But in my point in my career, with all my other obligations, is it the best use of my learning time? Mm. Or would I be better, boring as it is, but learning about uh, legislation and education? Or managing teams online, whatever it is. So, uh, and this is taxing. This constant having to think: what am I learning, and why am I learning It's a meta process, but it's it's taxing. Um, so we do fall back in these in these conventional structures because because they're there, and and they take care of that part of the cognitive work. They take away the stress of worrying about it. You just turn up and do what your French professor says. But there's no doubt that that is. Uh, best irrelevant for some people and suboptimal for many so i would i would say um, if i can help at all it's this it's this try and get out and find what real people are doing in the real world you've got the fallback option on the standard disciplines they they're traditional they, they've worked they've got very clever people great bodies of literature they're coherent they'll give you a worldview. But you and many, many people like you are conscious that you're sort of somewhat artificially restricting yourself in that Mm. way, just for peace of mind's sake. So there's something that will be niggling you about that. So the other alternative is to get out there, (laughs) literally get out there, where people are struggling against um, uh, markets constraints, legal constraints, financial constraints, social constraints, and see what those problems are. This is really the LAS philosophy in a way. And then see, with those problems as nexuses, as kind of things that really need to be addressed, okay, now what do I need to learn to really understand this You know, migrant child, come to this country, no parents, stuck in a detention center. What are the issues surrounding that child to give them some chance in life? What, what do you need to learn? And then, and then just go and learn it. But it's harder because you've got to organize that yourself. Unless you're in a, maybe a situation like LAS where we're trying to do, a bit of both. We're trying to give students the freedom to start to learn like that and keep that real-world focus, but also the scaffolding, the structure, and the reassurance that this is a another lens, if you like, or another another way of categorizing your learning that's not discipline-based but is a, f- a focused way of approaching learning. And we're just not designed for this, are we? I mean, human beings are just not designed for this amount of information. This is It's a kind of um, over... Eating, about our information is analogous to abundance in in food, which we're su- suffering from physically now. Now we have this abundance of knowledge. Before, yeah. you know, you wouldn't for vast periods of history, vast societies, the only kind of knowledge input you'd get would be sort of oral history and stories. And the speed of processing required for that is, is just many, many orders of magnitude less than what we're, we're doing now. There's there's just a, no a choice element. And now, the choice element and wrestling with that every day is if we 're interested it's almost like just like with the food and the sugar thing. our natural impulses to learn and learn quickly have been hijacked by this new environment, and we 're kind of suffering because of that hijacking it's a good and a bad it's kind of delicious, and you want more of it, and before you know it you you're, you're sort of lost you've overindulged you 've not done what's good for you and it's a tremendous challenge so i, I wouldn't i wouldn't worry that it's you're finding it hard. Um, but I would try to find focus somewhere. I think it's uh, focuses. I think it's really important.
0: I think something that you mentioned earlier or something that that's part of the LIS philosophy is looking at a problem and then looking to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of focus your learning around the problem. But there's this brilliant quote just on the, on the point of, uh, of information and how much we have to consume or how much we do consume. I'm not going to say we have to is to some extent a choice. Um, somebody and I don't know who for the life of me said um if information was always translated into action we'd all be geniuses with six packs something like that we know what food to eat we know what food not to eat we know you know a whole bunch of things but for some reason we can't retain the knowledge and you know we don't actually do the crunches or not do the crunches for that matter um absolutely yeah there's that and then a moment ago you said and you know, it kinda of, sadness to my heart when you said that you started the machine learning course and and, and then you had to kind of give it up two weeks later, right?
1: Yeah, because, I did two weeks of it, yeah.
0: Because, you know, you need to learn about legislation in the in the education se- sector. So there's there's two things. There there's the the bureaucracy and then there's there's a quote by, by Karl Marx and I'll, I'll put my hands up i haven't read all that much Marxist literature but this one he said um his his dream or his uh his his utopia would be where he could be a hunter in the morning a fisher in the evening and a lecturer at night without uh, or lecturing hunting and fishing without ever becoming one of those three things so he could do all of them during the day which is a wonderful idea in and itself if we separate that from the rest of the ideology perhaps but um that seems to be the problem. You weren't able to, to do machine learning because you had to realign with the the boundaries or the constraints that, that are in place at the moment.
1: Yeah, in some ways, I'm uniquely privileged in that I can sort of tool up almost anywhere and it's sort of relevant because interdisciplinarity is so broad and complex mm-hmm. that I can learn almost anything and adds to my particular toolkit. But in other ways, um, yeah, in other ways, not. In other ways, just what you were saying, I have to think, is this the best use of my learning time now for what I need? And for sure, I want to understand more about machine learning because for my students, I think, and jobs, it's really important. But that's, if you like, kind of almost a bit lower level in quotes of um, granular level of knowledge, which is important for them, but actually not that important for me. Somehow I need to understand the structures that can enable that to happen without knowing what exactly that is. And it does make me sad. It's a bit more boring, I have to say. I mean, I love getting stuck into something real, like like uh, you know, machine learning or a foreign language. Um, but as you get older, I think as you get more into management, more senior, more bureaucratic positions, um, that becomes less relevant. So you spend less time learning it because only twenty four hours in a day. Yeah, it's uh, like I say. You these these are going to be tough choices for you because you're multi talented and you you know you got lots of interests. I'm sorry, man. It's hard to be it's hard to be gifted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about talented. Curious, curious is the word that I go for. Definitely curious. How how has um, what, what First of all, two two twofold questions. So, what did you think you were going to do, kind of, when you were younger, perhaps even my age? And the second of all, um, how has teaching impacted your, say, life? So, I,
1: I'm like many kids, I wanted to be a footballer first, and I was good. I played for Oxford, uh, United kind of youth team, when I was very young. So that was uh, really kind of under-11s, under-12s. And I played with some b- people who went on to big careers, actually. Martin Keown was a teammate of mine, and Gary Parker, really? <laughs> you won't remember, yeah. Um, I was just one notch below them, I guess, in talent, not, not far off. So, I mean, they had premier careers. Perhaps I could have had a smaller league career, but... I don't know, you know, a lot of kids uh, are good at football. Um, so that lasted a while, uh, and then it was music, um, and I wanted to be literally a rock star. It's not really original. <laughs> I was in a couple of good bands, and even the opera singing thing was um, partly about being a rock star because you're a soloist and it's quite glamorous going around the world. And But like being a rock star, um, perhaps unlike being a footballer, the kind of... Whole aspect of the fame just sort of gets boring as you get older, and you think, why, why, why do they want to do that? It's not about the music really so much. So teaching has always been there. I've always taught on and off. Of music. Well, you're
0: performing in both, whether you're, you're you're singing or teaching, you are performing
1: on some level. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and uh, even now, when I you know give lectures, and you know I definitely draw on my performance skills as a, as an opera singer. Um, yeah, I mean, teaching always helped pay some of the bills. You know, wh- whether I was studying maths, physics, or music, I uh, or on my gap year in France with my girlfriend, where I taught English, has always been been there. I, I enjoy teaching. Um, I find it tiring, I have to be honest. Uh, I, I have nothing but massive admiration for school teachers who hour after hour standing in front of the class. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. Um, particularly these days, we have to be so responsive to students. I think in the old days when Master just you know Master just stood there with a cane and kind of whacked it out and then fell asleep in the lesson when they needed a the break that was easier but now it's it's like constant interaction, real empathetic interaction, which is really tiring. I've, Sorry? I've,
0: I've, I've, I've always been curious as to why teachers don't get paid more than they do. I know it sounds like a simplistic statement, but um i've always wondered i mean. All the people who are going to go into industry and corporations and they'll, they'll be the ones who make money, whether they're going to be bankers or lawyers or, or medics, they're being taught and educated by teachers. So the teaching profession needs to have you know, a bit more value. And I think many people are deterred from the job because of the, the lack of financial incentive. So,
1: um, I absolutely agree with you, Marcus. You've hit something, a, a very simple thing, along with the private school sector, I'm just passionate about, I'm passionately frustrated about. I cannot understand how we haven't managed to pay teachers better in 40, in 40 years. And I think partly it's... Uh, I don't know. I mean, the government wants markets everywhere, right? Markets for the you know better people going to do this job. Oh, except teachers. We'll pay teachers crap because they're not incentivized by money. Everyone else is, but weirdly somehow teachers aren't. And it's not even being incentivized by money. It's just seeing some kind of comparability with your other professional friends. I mean, I understand apparently, and I, I don't know exact numbers, that there are tracks for teachers in inner city Comprehensives. As head of departments, to get to, you know 50k fairly quickly, which is which is which is decent. Uh, if you get to 50k by the time you're 30, that's okay. But you're still starting from a much lower base than many people going into consultancy or banking. At least 10, if not 20 grand, 30 grand less. Um, and I sorry, the other point I want to make, and again, I don't have concrete evidence. So if you're listening, anyone else listening to this, uh, I'd like to get the real facts. But I do feel the unions have been a bit resistant because. Um, of the kind of uh, aspects of the sort of people that might be attracted and the quality, you have to have a trade-off. I don't know how you performance manage it because that's difficult in education, but you've got to pay and get good people into education. The same people that the top companies and governments in the world would take on and pay them 50 grand starting salary, you need those people going into education. And you just don't get it. And it's a travesty and it's a madness. I just wonder what happened to the whole society overnight if your average state school teacher could roll at school with really nice clothes, really nice car and just say, "Yep, yeah, I earn as much as your, your dad, the bank manager or your aristocratic friend, just the respect for education mm. that they give, and the respect for learning and that sort of attitude to life that would give because we are measured in financial terms in our society. And, uh, the, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I couldn't agree more with you. So if your generation can do something about this, um, I think it'd be great for the whole
0: society i'll get on the job carl i'll let you know how it goes <laughs> no it is it is i mean if i've ever got some kind of platform it is something i'd like to make a difference in because it, you laid out the argument perfectly coherently that it, something does need to change um i want to shift over into um it was it was triggered by something that you said there actually it's about um sort of learning and obviously we know learning is important and learning has brought us thus far but um How about the risk of uh, kind of over-intellectualizing things and having a a total detachment from... I mean, what is the purpose of learning? There are many theories of education. I know I'm not actually familiar with that many, but what what is the purpose of learning in your opinion? I'd imagine most schools started out because they needed to prepare factory workers. I think that's the story. Um, Has education changed much since since it was kind of a, a... a machine for industrial hands. I
1: think it's had many cycles. It's really hard to generalize because you've got your academy, as you mentioned, Lyceum, uh, you know, kind of elites drawn to thinking for thinking's sake, which nevertheless had very practical applications, as you mentioned. You know, maths and engineering was part of those places as much as philosophy was. Um, and then you've got the whole kind of vocational education stream, apprenticeships, uh, <coughs> craftsmanship. It's, it's it's too complex to really really summarize what in in it's too complex to ask. the question. What is education for? Is I think too vague a question. Um, over thinking, for thinking,
0: thinking for thinking state. Thinking yeah. for thinking state. What so,
1: do you make so, of that? So I was going to go back to the your earlier question, which was you know is it possible to over intellectualize and i think the answer is there yes and possibly i'm guilty of that sometimes but i also think as with almost anything we we talk about there's a place for it in society so the rest is a matter of degree Uh, There's always been a place for, for example, I think priests and monks and nuns in society who do nothing but pray and intellectualize about God, if you like, you know, what is their value to the world? some may ask. I think there is a value. There's a, uh, a value in knowing that they're there doing it, even if there's not a very obvious value in some sort of corny way that their prayers are having an effect. So... (laughs) <laughs> I'm just generally in favor of diversity of things, diversity of people doing things and mixed economies and mixed approaches. And being very intellectual is very important. I think we we lose our way as societies unless we have philosophers, writers, thinkers, but we can go too far as well. I mean, I think, and I think the danger of the mass expansion of universities is that we are Sort of turning out half-baked versions of that sometimes mm. that aren't much use in other other areas and, and people that don't really care about that are being asked to intellectualise beyond what they're naturally comfortable with or feel is worthwhile and that's a that's a shame because it is a gr- the life of the mind the phrase I like is is something deeply important to me and I think everyone has a life of the mind actually and everyone is grateful when you're interested in the life of their mind but that takes many shapes and forms and some people don't want too much of that stuff you know uh and some people want nothing but that so um you have to respect the different uh views there just one thing on this uh so although i'm sort of arguing somewhat for not doing over intellectualizing i think there's definitely a place for it in in every individual and in society in a whole i do think the whole trajectory of you know, post-industrial society is towards a more intellectual society, a more mind-based society, knowledge-based. So the whole knowledge economy thing, you know, lots of lots of statistics about the nature of the work people are doing now, moving away from the manual uh, to the intellectual and the personal, and the value of intangible assets uh, economically as opposed to stuff. Human capital, yeah, yeah, human capital, and and even you know. Very abstract things in the financial world, derivatives, markets, options, futures, intellectual property, shows that there's this sort of shift uh, towards the intellectual in in more advanced societies. And indeed, I think that's what a lot of people are reacting against. I think a sort of perhaps even a small majority of people feel very left behind by that movement precisely because they're not that intellectual. And they're like, Mm. this is all bullshit to me. People talking, you know, why can't we make real stuff? You know, why can't we? Um, you know common sense sort of things and so that, that's one of your polarizations I think so yeah it's
0: the the thinkers and the doers but it's not it's not like that it's
1: not really like that because you know doing is thinking is doing in a lot of the knowledge yeah. economy you know inventing products or even kind of writing well for journalism is kind of thinking first so I i Depends a bit how I'm talking to you, Marcus. I mean, sometimes I think, you know, if I'm talking to someone who's really boorish about this and really, really anti-intellectual and kind of, you know, you're all snobs and what's... I'd say, listen, you know, 83% of the UK economy is service economy. That's the fact. That's where your mm. money's coming from. What's paying for your roads, your health service. Um, so if you get rid of all that, you're fine. You can go back to 1840s where everyone's starving on potatoes, but that's what you're looking at. Uh, but on the other hand, when I'm talking to people who talk about... Um <laughs> you know, um yeah, the, the, the you know, people are thick if they don't want to engage in this or or uh you know, we all need this sort of uh very abstract higher education or this education for education's sake. I uh, I would I would ask them to think about exactly what learning event, again, so what learning they're doing, what reflection they're doing on this intellectualizing and how How real it is, how well grounded it is, how how thoughtful it is. Because bad intellectualizing is there's almost like nothing worse. (laughs) I'd rather have a badly made pot or a a bad plumber than a bad intellectual.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, because sometimes you have these these conversations, which and I don't know if it it might be stupid of me to say that you know there are questions that you can't get answers to. I know you know the big scientists would disagree with me on, but I mean, does God exist? Yes, no, maybe you you kind of you choose one of those positions and you kind of go with the nuances but I don't think scientifically you can ever prove that but then there are these massive conversations about you know this and that of course it has massive implications of course it has big implications on on the way people choose to live their lives but um from a kind of acquiring knowledge sense it it goes not very far I think
1: What, you mean just asking those big questions in a vague way? No,
0: no, 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 not asking those. I'm all for asking those big questions. But when those big questions turn into endless debate or endless discussion, where both sides deep down know that, you know, this is my opinion, this is my belief. I can't disprove you. I can can lay down a lot of evidence against you and the other side can probably do the same. But, you know, we kind of need to settle it at that.
1: Yeah, it's back to what you were saying earlier really, about these fundamental disagreements which seem so hard to resolve. So much that we took for granted because we just had our communities and what our mothers and fathers and priests told us. Uh, all that's gone now. And this, yeah. this the cognitive strain and work that that gives us is, is, is just immense. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think I once tweeted out, what, uh, there's sometimes too much Siri and there's sometimes... Uh, there's not enough theory what can I tell you and that's just, that was one of those moves <laughs> it's like you know I've been reading a lot of critical theory which honestly I, I don't really like it's uh, a lot of stuff in the humanities and this intersectionality and stuff now uh, of course it's got uh, a purpose and the originator of it Kimberly Crenshaw is a very interesting smart person her, her take is subtle but it's been completely taken up and kind of abused by massive sections of academia Um so sometimes I just think, oh, gosh, enough of all that stuff. And then other times I think, um, you know, without these more radical, critical thinkers and people problematizing everything we do, we do just end up repeating the same old uh, prejudices, really, and mm-hmm. um, and established misconceptions. So, so we need both. I think above all, back to your individual thing, really, above all in this extraordinary period of information overabundance, what we need to learn is the kind of that meta thing of when we should switch off when we should. <laughs> so there's something about the content of what we need to learn, which is difficult enough. And that's where I think, you know, relating to the real world and real problems is important, but just as important as thinking, man, I've just been looking at too many Wikipedia pages for the last four days. That's I'm a gonna... lot of words. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take three days just cycling around the city, maybe not have my phone on me for, Six to eight hours a day, take some books, uh, you know, just just living in a different way, so that you're not bombarded by the different sort of learning, um, to allow things to settle down in your individual way. That's all we can do at the end of the day, isn't it? Is be true to our individual minds and try to develop them the best we can. Um, a bit like again what you were saying earlier, and we just got to hope that that aggregates in some way to something positive for society i think that's very hope. hard to predict
0: yeah it is a it is a big thing about hope definitely um you gave me a, a perfect segue a moment ago into the future of work but for some reason i went somewhere else can we can we get back there future of work three questions or maybe there are two three questions which jobs are going to stay which jobs are going to disappear and which jobs are going to be created
1: So I'm not sure I'll be very original here, Um, just what I've read, you know, McAfee and these guys on the fourth industrial revolution and so on. Um, I see no decline in the service industry, Um, 83%, as I said, and that's been rising steadily for 50 years. I think the world is getting more complex. Um, Again, that's hard to really, well, it's not that hard to put numbers on, actually. We've got connectivity statistics from the internet, we've got data statistics from information being produced and downloaded and so on so the complexity of that means that we're going to need people who can handle that complexity who act as as conduits for that complexity and sense makers and, and produce that information in meaningful forms for other audiences these sorts of jobs even as I'm talking to them, I have spent a long time in this space I've written articles about this I sense if I'm talking to someone from a more traditionalist society or even someone from a very working-class area and background in our society. It just sounds like bullshit. It's like, what mm-hmm. do you mean? But it isn't bullshit. It's got tremendous monetary and cultural value for someone who can take the relevant information from a very complex environment and say, this is what you need to know because this is going to save your business or this is going to stop you making terrible mistakes or whatever. So um, these are the jobs I've seen happen for my graduates and they're called a range of things sometimes they're literally called sense maker or problem solver i know someone a bit older who's chief problem solver for a design company sometimes great at the position level, yeah yeah it's fun um sometimes at the entry level they're called things like program manager where you're just kind of managing a, <coughs> a team on a problem you have to bring in all the information
0: and knowledge to it help sounds them. a lot like Kind of a uh, sorry to cut you off, it sounds kind of like a a management consultant slash group psychologist slash <laughs> slash slash, yeah. slash 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 keep going with the slashes, yeah so um, I think the consultancy
1: the consultancy thing's really interesting I think um it's been through several phases, so uh, I think back in the eighties with Thatcher there was a big boom in these people um, i don't know why then, I think so I wasn 't really sort of paying attention and then. There was a period, I think, in the 90s when a lot of well, senior managers just said, what is all this BS? Who are these Cambridge graduates coming and telling us how my business should run? And they just cut all these people from their budgets and they didn't find that was too detrimental. So you had a big slump in consultancy. What I have seen, certainly through my graduates and working through with other organizations, um, is that there's a real blurring now between consultancy and actually producing something a real product for use so the consultancy kind of bs aspect we just come and advise and nothing happens as opposed to the in-house person actually doing something i think is really blurred now so for example i know consultants who've been on a project to look at the internal search engine of an organization uh and found it not working, and so the, consul- the organisations literally said, "Have you got the chops to actually build us the new one?" And they said, "Yes." So that segues between identifying the problem, and actually fixing it, um, it has become much more common. So I think consultancy is sort of in the right on on the rise again. It's, I've worked with consultants at LIs, who you know, I need them to find out certain aspects, for example, of teaching machine learning, and they might have worked with Google for a while, um, and they tell me stuff, and then actually it happens that I don't have the capacity to write a particular curriculum on machine learning. So I say, well, actually, could you help me write the curriculum? They say, yes. So they end up producing something for me. And um, um, so we need to, it's a vocabulary thing and a perception thing. We need to get over the, the distinction between a kind of meaningless consultant who's just coming with a lot of generalist skills uh and gone away again and the kind of in-house real worker that this is much much more fluid now than than it was and it, this is a function of there just being so much novelty in the system this you know, businesses you know churn at business of ideas and need to rebrand themselves and rethink themselves is immense and you talk to a company like sort of a you think of you know food delivery and so on and and i think i hope i have a misquote i think that they They've gone from that to logistics company general transport to actually now they're a software company because there's really? the software governing yeah. their logistics process so how an organization thinks about itself and therefore the sorts of experts and consultants it needs to be relating to all the time is in such a it's a fascinating state of flux, but it's such a constant state of flux that I think we i think we're misguided to sort of think oh consultancy is is um you know, it's sort of second-rate advice. Uh, there are so many ways that you can input expertly into into business by being a consultant now. So, yeah, so back to the jobs that are going to stay there. They're going to be hybrid. That's a really key term. Uh, great report for me came out from something called Burning Glass Technologies, who do big data analysis of job adverts. They look at over a billion entries, and they find the word hybrid rising in job adverts, uh, which is very interesting for interdisciplinarity. So people have, you know, hard skills, coding, soft skills, humanistic skills, and so on. Um, that's going to rise. Uh, the obvious one that's going to go is is certain types of routine manual work, but also routine clerical work. So uh, it's already happening in accountancy and law that certain jobs are being taken over by artificial intelligence. It's a bit slower than we thought, maybe. And, of course, some manual jobs will be here forever. It's impossible at the moment to think a computer will do a construction or you know carpentry um but might end up doing cleaning maybe mm. uh, and the new ones we created yeah i mean that's anyone's bet isn't it there's um it's just i mean this what's going to happen in health now we're going to have a whole glut of people i mean i was telling people like six months ago the only job i can guarantee we're going to need in the next 10 years is trades and negotiators for break, post Brexit britain and I, but now um yeah, we will need some of them, but we're also going to need a lot of public health experts yeah, and everything sure, associated sure. with that. So having that flexibility, really, to retrain, which is also a good byproduct of being interdisciplinary, being educated in an interdisciplinary way, that's going to be going to be really important.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Um, I'm going to give you a, a small challenge if you will it's not really a challenge sure. but just go watch the
1: time a bit actually marcus i better scoot off in a few minutes if that's all right
0: okay no problem yeah we'll round up as soon as possible um instead of challenge we'll get to my final question i'll challenge you another carl. Okay. Um, yeah that's another, another
1: challenge <laughs> so have, these are the a special a special called marcus's challenge for carl
0: yeah it's not a bad idea okay thank you carl thank you <laughs> you've helped me in more than one way um what are the most important skills for the 21st century in your estimation
1: wow we're
0: going to do a quick fire round because you need to head off um
1: agility uh so confidence and some ability to tool up in quantitative and qualitative areas of life
0: okay what is one thing that everybody or anybody who's managed to make it to the end of this should do after they've finished with talk yeah
1: Go outside and feast on some green
0: part of nature. Okay, brilliant. Um, What is one question that everybody should ask themselves regularly? Why am I learning what I'm learning? Why am I learning what I'm learning? And what if they're not learning
1: anything? Then ask why they're not learning anything. Why
0: am I watching so much Netflix? Okay um that can be learning too right it can, it can be. be it can be it can be but often it kind of deteriorates into a <laughs> mind-numbing pit of despair um what is your best habit Col? wow
1: great questions um habit i mean just just kind of being interested in what other people are interested in count as a habit
0: i guess the way we could turn that into a habit is Asking questions, asking yeah. questions. Yeah, yeah. Um. And if I gave you authority over a massive billboard somewhere in central London, what is the one sentence you would put on it? Wow, these are these are tough. for quick fire. It's not
1: like you know <laughs> peanut butter or marmite type questions. You got tell me. <laughs> um. What's the one sentence I put on that billboard? It could be
0: two sentences.
1: Wow. That's a really good question. I don't, I'd like to have long to think about that. Uh, but I haven't. So, how are you sure you're right? How are you sure you're right? Or maybe what would make you change your mind?
0: That's a good question. They're both good questions. I like both (laughs) of those questions. Thank you. Um, Okay, next time we meet, I'll ask you both of those questions about whatever topic we get into. Yeah, okay. Carl, cool. thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I wish you all the best. And I'm sorry, I know we ran over a bit. Um, it's a
1: real pleasure, Marcos. Nice to talk to you. And I, I haven't really asked you much about your plans, but maybe we can do that off, off camera another time.
0: Hello, my friends. It's Marcos here. If you've made it this far, then I have a few things to say to you. The first of which is thank you, thank you for making it all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. The second thing is I'm sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that at some point in this episode I said something absurd or stupid. And if I did, then I want to hear from you. I want to hear why you disagree, how you disagree, what you think I can do to improve my thinking, and so on and so forth. I'd like to hear from you. I'll leave my contact details in the description. If you enjoyed the episode, if you thought it had some kind of value, education or otherwise, then please do go ahead and share it. Share it with your friends, your family, anybody you think might be interested. And that is all from me. Until next time.